God who made all things, the second person of the Trinity who humbled himself in the form of a servant and came to earth, living among us, calling us to repentance, taking our sins on himself, dying for us and rising again. What does it mean to be grounded in that person? Each episode, we will unpack what it means to be grounded in Christ, what it means to be a branch in the true vine, what it means to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and how our groundedness in Christ should influence the way we look at faith, worship, politics, marriage, history, scripture, theology, and so much more. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoy the episode, that God speaks through me during our time together, and that this and every episode grounds you further in Jesus Christ. Five hundred years removed from the period of European history known as the Reformation. This period coincided fairly closely with the Renaissance, and many of the undercurrent themes do actually overlap. The Reformation, however, by definition sought to reform the church as it was known then. So today's podcast is easily a couple of different classes in a seminary level education. But uh, I wanted to condense it all into a one-time podcast. Uh, just, you know, I don't know, this might end up being 20 or 30 minutes, but that's a lot less than, you know, three semesters of different long classes. So hopefully, after just kind of getting a drink from this water hose that is Reformation history, uh, you'll be excited to learn more. But before we can get into the why uh, behind the Reformation, we need to quickly, again, you know, quick as compared to multiple master levels classes, we need to quickly look at what was going on in Europe, in the European continent, prior to Martin Luther and the Wittenberg Church. Uh, there are a number of factors that we need to consider uh, that helped the mechanics of the Reformation occur. Uh, the change the Reformation brought didn't happen in a vacuum, and arguably could not have happened before or in any other kind of different cultural context. When considering how the Reformation could take place, uh, scholars look at these occurrences, uh, plus undoubtedly more that I'm about to mention, and they see the embers of the Reformation begin to ignite. First, we have the fall of Constantinople in 1453 AD. Uh, this city housed many of the great scholars and scholarly works of the ancient church. With the fall of this vestige of the Christian faith of antiquity, uh, these people and their works made their way into Europe. Number two, Erasmus's Greek New Testament. It was convenient that right around the same time, Erasmus had been working uh, on a New Testament. So you have uh, these ancient, faithful ancient Christians uh, bringing these ancient documents from Constantinople, from the eastern side of the old Roman Empire, bringing their stuff into Europe. And it was around the same time that Erasmus, who was a brilliant scholar, had been working on an accurate uh, Greek New Testament. The influx of Greek works led to uh, the necessity of having a matching testament uh, reclaiming that original language. Number three, there were serious issues, serious issues within the Roman Catholic Church. Most of the European continent claimed adherence to the RCC, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, equally, most Europeans, including a majority of the common clergy, were illiterate and incredibly superstitious. 
you know, they were corrupt and immoral church leaders. Uh, there was an, the egregious act of selling indulgences uh, connected to the unbiblical idea of purgatory. These and other factors were leading many of them, many of the world, many of the European world, uh, to reject much of the RCC, the Roman Catholic Church. Four, we had humanism and nationalism beginning to take root. In the Renaissance period, humanism referred to the new thirst for antiquity. Uh, we can think of the first two points I mentioned uh, for this in part. We can thank those things. There was a drive from many to reclaim these grandeur aspects of the past. Simultaneously, we were seeing the rise of nation-states. Where there had been basically just the RCC and the Holy Roman Empire effectively ruling much of the continent in one way or the other, uh, we're seeing nations uh, begin to coalesce a bit. This would have... Uh, Sorry, this would be a help to the burgeoning Reformation. Five, we have uh, the pre-reformers, people like William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, John Hus, and others. You know, these were they're beginning to take some of these previous factors and ask questions about their faith and uh, the RCC. They were creating vernacular translations of the Bible, that is, uh, Bibles written in the language of those common people that they were pastoring and the theologians were surrounded by. Uh, they were beginning to understand that the concept of faith alone for God's grace. They were questioning the authority, the power, the legitimacy of the Pope and the RCC. They were threats. It was their lives and their work which helped to spur on the first reformers. Number six, finally, you have Gutenberg. Uh, the invention of the printing press was an incredible boon to the rise of the Reformation. With a newly found ability to print pamphlets with accuracy and speed, New ideas could spread faster and farther than ever before. Now, I know I am missing a multiplicity of factors and variables, and I knew that I could never hit all of them or even explain them to their fullest extent. But hopefully, I've begun to paint a decent enough picture to get uh, to this first question in our look today of the Reformation. Why did the Reformation happen? Well, I just listed factors that helped uh, tip the European continent in the direction of a new period, it's, it's not really what caused the Reformation. Remember, the Renaissance was occurring around the same time, and it was not a theological, theological endeavor. Yet, it played on many of the same themes that I listed above. The church, uh, the invisible church, unbounded by denominationalism or time or space, the church had uh, been preserved over uh, a thousand years. Yet, in the midst of this preservation, there had begun to grow some wildly unbiblical tares among the wheat. The dominant European church, the Roman Catholic Church, the RCC, had become undeniably corrupt. What had once been a thriving part of the church, now seen as Eastern Orthodoxy, had been effectively cut off from the rest of the church and would remain in its own bubble for generations. Errors, heresies, corruption, greed, pride and so many other evils were plaguing the European church. In the midst of all of this, the Lord began to work in the hearts and minds of the pre-reformers, their initial questions, their novel ideas of preaching and translating. These things began to seep into the theological wellwater of the European continent. It spurred along new ideas and raised up new voices. The average Christian of this period may never have seen a Bible in person, the average priest presiding over a service may never have actually read the Bible in its entirety. For many years, a liturgy had been developed, 
and often memorized, which gave church leaders something to perform each week in the Mass. The Reformation brought something drastically different to the table. The, re the word Reformation came from the fact that Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bootser, Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and the like believed they were reforming aspects of the RCC. They had not intended to break off from it, recognizing that was a dramatic move. There would be a whole other slew of reformers of the period that would consider themselves uh, so radically reformed that they would break away from everything. Instead, we have these guys who were looking to reform. It became known as the Protestant Reformation as it began to take off uh, and truly became a protest, Protestant protest, of the necessary reforms the church needed to bring her back in line with scripture. The reformers themselves actually preferred the name evangelicals, as they saw that the grace of God was found not in the sacraments or the duties or the stuff, the things you would do of the RCC, but in the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, the evangelion, the evangels, the evangelists that they were. The act of reforming the church came most notably on the heels of what could be uh, termed or what has become known as the five solas. It is in these five points of theology that the entire why can be defined. The word sola in Latin means alone or by oneself. So these five points define the things that the Christian must have as the foundation of their walk and with God alone. Nothing else should be true markers. So we have sola scriptura or scripture alone. Scripture not tradition, not the Pope. That is where the fountain of truth is. We only need the scriptures to find and interpret the truth of God. Solus Christus, Christ alone. We are saved by Christ alone, not works, not participation in sacraments or paying indulgences. We are not saved by social justice or national pride. Christ alone provides salvation to his people. Sola fide, faith alone. Christ saves by faith alone, again, not by works, not by good intentions or good actions, and not even if they so-called outweigh the bad. Sola gratia, grace alone. Uh, faith is given through grace. Our salvation depends on the grace of God more than anything we could do. And finally, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Ultimately, our salvation is to God's glory. We aren't saved so that we, that we receive glory or honor. We are saved by Christ through faith as a gift of grace described in Scripture, all to God's amazing glory. The Reformation following these five solos had to happen in order to refocus God's church back on him as priority. Why did the Reformation take place? Because the Lord ordained that in this specific time, among these specific people, his grace would roll in changing lives across a continent so that his name would be given the glory it deserves. So the second point to consider. Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. This phrase, in Latin, means the church reformed, ever reforming. Basically, the idea it gets across is that the church in this period was reformed against what had come before it, and it would not stop reforming. While the Reformation was a specific period in history, the desire it awakened in God's people should never be extinguished. Christians rightly recognized that the five solos were eternally true in Scripture and in human history. 
and that uh, we will be tempted to continue to slide away from his truth. Even now, we Protestant Christians need to be ever on guard against losing sight of our Savior. When something a church does doesn't seem to make sense, we need to ask why. We need to go and ask, you know, does this give God glory? We need to ask, does this reflect truth found in Scripture or the world around us? This idea of reformed and always reforming needs to be more than a cliche statement. The Church of Christ, his body, needs to be ever alert for wolves in the pastures. We need to be aware that any traditions we may hold dear must always be shown to the light of Scripture and often to ensure that they are biblical and not simply traditional. If we see corruption or error, it must not be allowed to remain. To be uh, ever-reforming means the church is never comfortable, never resting on their laurels or, or, or willing to turn a blind eye to heresy in the name of togetherness. Seeking to keep the peace by turning against God's truth is what brought the Reformation in the first place. Let us not repeat that exact same transgression now. So how do we do this? Well, simply enough, we need to know history and what brought the Reformation into existence. We need to be biblically literate. You need to know your Bible, what it teaches, what it speaks, and what it doesn't say, what it doesn't teach. We need to stay alert to when those who call themselves brothers or sisters in Christ and yet act like they're outsiders of the faith in God. Reformed and always reforming means that we should not allow ourselves to become comfortable with any status quo, while at the same time refusing to simply eject all tradition as soon as it has some sort of generational adherence. To live this statement as a Christian means we know the solas and seek to live, worship, fellowship, and evangelize by the sola model, which is in Scripture. As we live a life seeking Christ and dying to ourselves, we need to be aware of where the Lord seeks to reform our lives. Outside of Christ, outside of God, without Christ, we are in desperate need of reform. We will not find life eternal with God in paradise unless we are reformed by Christ himself, through his Spirit, by the call of the Father. Consider the reformers. Martin Luther didn't pin his 95 Theses. He didn't begin to go down this path of trying to reform the church until Christ had radically changed his life. Same goes for John Calvin. Same goes for John Knox. Same goes for all of these guys. As we live our lives, raise our children, connect to a local church, May we remember to be reformed by Christ and always willing to reform, refocusing our eyes on Christ. So if we've considered, you know, what was the Reformation? How can we still be reforming now? What is the future of the Reformation movement? Now, you know, for this section, I'm just simply going to be giving my opinion. I'm going to speculate. I, I am no church historian. I am not a master in this area. I don't even think of myself as someone who is extraordinarily good at making guesses, but I think we need to be willing to look ahead and consider how can we continue to allow the Reformation to work in our churches and our lives, recognizing that the Reformation only worked, only happened, only existed because of their dedication to Scripture, to God, to the truth, and the proclamation of the good news. So let me start by reminding us all that the gates of hell will never truly prevail the church. It cannot stop the church from succeeding. It cannot truly infiltrate its ranks. Christ declared on the cross, it 
is finished. His victory over hell, death, sin, and Satan was secured in that moment. The veil of the temple, that thing which separated the holy place from the rest of the world, was torn from the top to the bottom, allowing man to come before God again. John the Evangelist was shown a vision of a victorious Christ and a radiant bride at the end of time. You know, be encouraged that we will not thwart God's plan. God's plan will not be thwarted. So when we consider how does the Reformation move forward, it moves forward knowing that he is victorious. So, opinion number one, the church needs to address the wolves. The Reformation of the 1500s occurred when faithful Christians stood up against the power and reach of the RCC and spoke truth clearly and courageously. Today, we don't have that same cultural situation, but there are still wolves prowling the sheepfold, wearing the hide of sheep long lost. Wolves like modern or progressive Christians. Now, warning about them goes back as far as J. Gresham Machen in the 1920s. Or wolves like the prosperity gospel, quote-unquote, preachers. Remember that even the apostles warned their churches that there are some who think more highly of themselves than they should, some super apostles. Or we have wolves like those in the New Apostolic Reformation. Consider how nearly any time the word new is placed before ancient truths, it shouldn't be trusted. We have wolves that infiltrate each of the camps of the Christian church, even the more conservative ones. We see it in reformed circles by those who hold to the federal vision model or seek to recreate nation states into Christian utopias on earth now without trusting that the Lord is doing his work through us, not by using us to stamp down everything else. God is in control. God is creating his kingdom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be wary to approach wolves. Remember, you have the armor of God at your disposal and a promise that in the moment, the Spirit gives us the right words to speak. You know, maybe in another post we can unpack these different wolves in different ways. And I don't, you know, claim to have all the answers. I don't even claim to say that my opinions on wolves versus sheep is always going to be right. Uh, I will say that, you know, there are some things that need to be addressed. I think that the church needs to understand that if we want to continue to move forward, if we want to continue to fight back against the encroaching culture and the desire to almost bring us backward into a pre-Christian era where the church is oppressed in a brand new way, we need to recognize wolves and we need to call them out. We need to run them away. That's just opinion number one. Opinion number two, the church needs to reclaim evangelism. Evangelical was a term the reformers gave themselves as it referred to how the Bible described the transfer of grace. The RCC had claimed for centuries that grace was transferred through adherence to the sacraments like the marriage or the baptisms or Eucharist or whatever, whatever. Martin Luther and the reformers pointed back to the word of God reminding their audience and us that it is through Christ alone by the by the preaching of the gospel excuse me by the preaching of the gospel and the good news that we receive the grace of God this good news this euangelion's evangelion it is the foundation of our faith and of our proclamation too often in the western church we are comfortable comfortable in our lives and our faiths 
in our churches. We are comfortable being comfortable. No one is threatening our faith. No one is threatening our families or our lives because of our faith. Proclaiming the gospel to the lost is offensive. It's exclusive and belittling. It makes us feel weird. And, as I often say on Grounded, I am staring in the mirror when I say this. The reformers were known for their evangelism. Calvin alone sent hundreds of missionaries into, from Geneva into Catholic-controlled France to proclaim the Evangelion to the lost. And he did this knowing that he would only see a majority of them again when they met in paradise. Numerous reformers lost their lives translating the Bible into vernacular languages in Europe. They lost their lives standing up for the Protestant Reformation. They lost their lives refusing to recant biblical truth to instead hold to Roman Catholic dogma. You know, we have to recognize that when they um, were hunted by the RCC for their heresy of denouncing the Pope or pushing back against the RCC, they did that knowing that they were doing God's work. You know, we live in a different world today. But we still must realize that this world is under that direct influence of spiritual powers, which are hell-bent, pun intended, on assaulting Christ's bride any chance they get. While we in the American church, let's just say, you know, America as a country, not America as a continent, um, when we in the American church, uh, we may be rather comfortable. The rest of the church is not. Christians in Asia, in India, in Africa, in South America, even in Europe, on the front lines of the spiritual warfare. We hear uh, where we have the ability to meet and worship without fear. We need to become more bold. Taking notes from the reformers. How can we do this, though? Well, as I said before, it has got to start with the knowledge of our Bibles. We need to open them daily. We need to read them daily. We need to read whole books, letters, start from start to finish. Read the Bible knowing that it is breathed out by God and useful for many things, both internally and externally. At the same time, we must be in prayer, praying for God to awaken our hearts, praying that the Lord would work powerfully in our lives so that we can reflect His light, praying for strength and to remain true to Him, praying for revival. Lastly, may we be changed to enjoy the fellowship of believers, a time of personal revival time of personal accountability. May we learn to love corporate worship on Sundays and want to seek out time together as the bride of Christ. Let us want to seek time in the word together, time of prayer together, and time of worship together. Opinion number three, final opinion. The church needs to get uncomfortable. For many years, the majority of Christians in the West, specifically America, have been content with the ability to live comfortable lives. We may go to church on Sundays, yeah, maybe something on Wednesdays, maybe community groups, maybe Bible studies throughout the week. That's a lot of maybes. For far too many of us, me included, things of Christ are not priorities. Christ's bride is second in physical priorities, with the weakness of the body being allowed to take priority over the necessity to gather together. Christ's bride is second in spiritual priorities, letting our sinful flesh guide our eyes and hearts rather than Christ's spirit inside of us. We like that Christ has saved us from our sins. You know, we're even thankful and obedient, to an extent. This third opinion is uh, me writing to convict myself. 
our pastor preached recently that we don't take our walk with Christ seriously. That often we recognize the need to be uncomfortable, to get in better shape. You know, he cited the 75 hard system. Uh, but, you know, we see that we need to get our bodies in better shape to have a better life. We know that we need to be, you know, fit so we can be healthy. But the thought of doing the uncomfortable things to grow in Christ's likeness doesn't really create that same momentum. The idea of gouging eyes and cutting off hands, that's not quite as uh, internally commendable as the idea of getting up early or doing push-ups or going for a run. But what do we need to do to be uncomfortable? Oof, all right, let's ask a few questions about some areas where the comfortable Christians need some irritations. I'm saying this to me, so don't feel like I'm just trying to convict you. This is me too. Firstly, sin battles. Do you see and actively flee those things which draw you into sin? What are your steps? What are your uh, pieces in the arsenal to do that, to run from sin? Secondly, relationships. Does God take priority in your life? Compare the relationship you have with God, with your spouse or your significant other, your work, your parents, your siblings, or your children. Gospel Proclamation Do you fear telling others about Christ and the beautiful importance of the gospel? Do you fear that you don't know enough to tell others or that it'll be awkward or uncomfortable or convicting, but not in a good way? Go to God on that. We all need to be more comfortable proclaiming the gospel with words, not just actions. Number four, culture rejection. Do you want to be accepted by your friends more than fear rejection from a holy God? Often, number three, gospel proclamation is very tied to number four, culture rejection. We need to reject the culture so we can be more comfortable proclaiming the gospel. Number five is God's holiness. Have you fully understood the holiness of God in the face of your sin? Have I? Do we remember the Old Testament stories of when sinful man, approached a holy God without a covering? Consider the man that reached back to stop the ark from falling and died instantly. Consider uh, Nadab and Abihu and them offering strange fire and being consumed. Consider Saul uh, sacrificing and how he did that in his mind to worship God, but he did it in direct opposition to God's commands. We got to remember that God is holy. Number six, or lastly, our calling. You know, from our general calling as Christians to our specific calls in life, do we listen to the prodding of the Lord or do we act like Jonah? Do we act like Jonah in the sense of run away from it and then pout when bad people are saved? We have to recognize our calling. Now, being uncomfortable isn't bad. Often it's in those moments that we grow. In fact, we are told in numerous New Testament epistles, from Peter to Paul, that to grow in Christ is to be refined by fire. Metal is refined and made pure through intense heat and hammering. If we could put ourselves in the place of metal, you know, it's an uncomfortable thing to endure. May God give us the opportunity for growth by placing us in positions for refinement. May he make us more like him with each thrust into the fiery trials, and may we be winnowed with each strike of the hammer. Now, as I said in the beginning of this section, these are just my opinions on where the Reformation of the Church could continue today. Not that these are equal to the aspects of the Reformation of the 1500s, but they are needed aspects to address. So, 
final thought, how can I, how can you, how can we be a part of this reformed and always reforming? My hope is that as we walked through the history, importance, and future of the reformation of God's church, that we are all encouraged to see how the Lord works mightily in his church uh, with his bride in his world. This may be my longest post yet, my longest episode yet. And I apologize. I'm going to try to edit out the yawns. I'm doing this in the morning. So please forgive me if uh, I don't edit enough yawns out or you can still tell where the yawns were. Just recognize I'm a person. <laughs> and when things are hard, but you need to get make sure you record, you record through the yawns. So like I said, this may be my longest post. But did I miss anything? Was there a piece of Reformation history that you like that I didn't include? Let me know in the comments, uh, either on this episode, you can find me on social media, um, you can email me at groundedpx um, at gmail.com. Just let me know. You know, church history is one of my favorite things to think and talk about, um, as each period is important to consider as we, uh, can, as we face new challenges today. So I hope that you enjoyed this post as much as I enjoyed creating it. Um, church history is an important thing, and we need to make sure we are not losing it uh, as we you know, actually start living the next chapter of church history. We will learn from knowing what happened before and seek to not repeat it. And that is a really big reason why the Reformation mattered then, you know, why the Reformation continues to matter today, and why the Reformation will continue to matter in the future. But until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Grounded. I pray that in this short time, God has used me to encourage and convict you, to help you as the Spirit grounds each of us more and more into the person of Jesus Christ. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. Grounded also has an accompanying Instagram account and a Substack if you're interested in getting more content or just getting it in a different way. As always, have a blessed day and I look forward to talking again soon.